So in September, you published Haunted Bauhaus with us, the MIT Press, which is an investigation of sort of irrational and unconventional threads in the Bauhaus's history and ones that sort of problematize and challenge certain narratives. And one thing that your book does is, I guess it kind of like unsticks quite a sort of rigid, static set of stories we tell about the Bauhaus. And I was hoping we could start off by you telling me a little bit about what you think your research does or changes or sort of challenges about narratives of the Bauhaus. Sure, yeah. So it's been such a great centenary year, and I think a lot of new material has been uh, made available to the broader public through wonderful exhibitions and publications. But still, I feel often there is an established narrative of the Bauhaus that doesn't get challenged enough. And Haunted Bauhaus, I think, really does start from the ground up and say, what if we tell a different story? And then interweaves that with a lot of the figures we know about the Bauhaus. So it was a school that was in, existed in Weimar, Germany, uh, in the interwar period from 1919 to 1933. Uh, it was really experimental and taught people to think about art making through notions we recognize now, like, you know, be creative creative and open your mind and things like that, rather than learning a set of skills that one should perfect. It is often then remembered for this radical pedagogical method, which goes out into the whole world with a diaspora of Bauhäusla, as uh, members of the school were called, who go on to teach and uh, make art and design and architecture uh, throughout the world. So, you know, it's definitely an influential movement, but it's often remembered only for a handful of men when there were 1,253 people at the Bauhaus and 37% of them were women. And it's often remembered as an architecture school or an architecture style that is associated with uh, a lack of ornamentation, you know, a lot of the imagery that we associate with mid-century modernism really comes to the from this period. And indeed, the Bauhaus was always headed by an architect. There were three different directors. All of them were architects. But architecture wasn't taught in the school until 1927, when it had already existed for eight years. Uh, and uh, it, it existed earlier in earlier periods, but students had to go outside of the school in order to study it. And there was so much else going on there. And so, you know, my book, in fact, talks very little about architecture. I'm much more interested in uh, the design that was going on there. There was furniture design, weaving, painting was actually quite, you know, Paul Clay and Vasily Kandinsky were there. Um, but then there were all these kind of life experiments. There was dance, there was theater, there were was quite a lot of photography, even though photography wasn't officially taught there until 1929. So in its material, I create a very different Bauhaus, but also, I think most importantly, it's the people who are there that I look at. And then in doing that, I'm able to kind of tell a series of very different stories about what the experiments at the Bauhaus were. So these kind of different stories that you pull out or sort of draw sort of long overdue attention to. In the book, you use this concept of haunting, which you take from Avery Gordon's book, uh, Ghostly Matters. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting because it's 
this idea of kind of haunting as a kind of cultural and political history is quite a popular idea in Britain, especially. I'm, I'm not quite sure how how much it's thought about in the in the US, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you mean when you talk about haunting and how in a way these kind of repressed stories operate even in a kind of marginal sense and how they how they still have these sort of profound influences on the kind of stories for sure yeah um haunting is definitely having a moment and this in my mind the book has been called haunted Bauhaus for i think close to a decade now um but you know the it was the moment probably had started already then and you know it goes back to even people like Marx, who I, I draw on a bit, you know, writing in the middle of the 19th century, and he says a specter is haunting uh, Europe, and it's it's the specter of communism, um, you know, that is sort of threatening to come out. So, and he's behind then people like Derrida talking about hauntology. Um, so certainly it's a very rich field. And in my mind, even though it had this title of Haunted Bauhaus, I... I was having trouble articulating what that what work that term was doing until I found uh, a really wonderful book by Avery Gordon uh, that you mentioned called Ghostly Matters. And in fact, I wrote to Avery Gordon uh, last week because I thought, you know, I tell everyone how book her how good her book is. I should tell her, and it was very nice. I'm going to send her a copy of it. She had actually already heard about the book um, because of the London talk. She had uh, a friend um, in the audience. So, uh, Ghostly Matters is uh, Avery Gordon is actually a sociologist, but this book is very wide ranging. I really would recommend it to absolutely anyone, and it's even been reissued with a new introduction because it's been so. Influential. It was written, I think, originally at least two decades ago. Um, but she uses this concept of haunting as a way of breaking open her home discipline, which is also, you know, like art history, sociology is also a form of representation. You know, you know, who do we see? Who do we keep track of? Who do we pay attention to? And she says that there is, uh, there are in all fields or all kind of historical areas we're looking at, there are those who, uh, what she calls, who are meant to be invisible, yet show up without any sign of leaving. And more broadly, uh, the notion of haunting describes what she calls a paradigmatic way in which life, particularly modern life, is more complicated than those of us who study it have usually granted, since visibility is a complex system of permission and prohibition, presence, and absence. So, you know, there are, I think, in every field, those of us who know the field well, these figures who, you know, one either sees just as marginal figures or one sees that there are these people there who keep coming up and mm. kind of in a way are, are demanding our attention. And so what I do is is put a lot of these figures who haven't been paid attention to in the center and see how the movement looks then when we pay attention to them. And it's very different. Yeah, I think as well, one thing, I mean, just that idea of sort of haunting and things being slightly more complicated than people sometimes are uh, willing to admit seems really important at the minute with one thing that seems to come out in the book as well a little bit is I don't know I suppose there are these kind of two strands running through the book or a, a few strands and, and one of them is this kind of like cold supposedly kind of like logical modernism 
And then the other is a kind of slightly more fuzzy and kind of complicated and slightly more occult and unusual way of thinking about things that and and both seem to be kind of jostling at the minute politically and you know we're supposedly getting to a kind of more quantifiable world and a more kind of like logical world and it seems to at the exact same time just be becoming more and more complicated and slightly more I don't know unusual and creepy and spooky at the same time because of these supposedly kind of like logical technologies or ideas um and I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about two of the big themes that are coalescing around the Bauhaus, which is fascism and the occult. And you could talk about maybe a little bit whether or they sort of opposed each other or they intertwine or they sort of overlap or how how these two very big things sit together in this sort of historical moment, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. This the, The idea of a, you know, I start off the book talking about uh, the idea of rational versus irrational modernism, which Amelia Jones has uh, articulated very precisely. And the Bauhaus is usually seen as the most rational of modernism. And there's there's some justification for that. You know, it often presents itself as, you know, the polar opposite of surrealism, which is existing concurrently. But in fact, you know, the Bauhaus was kind of almost like a a node where things all come together. I liked the way you were talking about how these strands of rational and irrational modernisms, you know, they, they, they continue to today, even though they, you know, we see them already starting in the 18th century. And, you know, this today's kind of techno rationalism and how politics seem to be really somewhat out of control because of our interface with new technologies that we don't seem to know how to, um, Manage, And then on the other side, you know, there's this sort of growing environmental kind of spiritual tree hugging kind of thing that, you know, I even if I call it tree hugging, I definitely embrace myself. So, you know, at the at the Bauhaus, I think I am certainly not the first person to say there was a, a really hardcore especially in the early years of people who were interested in experimental religions at the Bauhaus. Um, But that story somehow, I think partially because it doesn't fit what people understand of the Bauhaus already, and also because a lot of that literature is in German. But even in Germany, it's still, it's just remained kind of a marginal story. Um, And then at the same time, there is this much harder kind of pared down side of it that could be utopian, you know, like travel light and what does it move fast and break things? That kind of of rhetoric, Um, but also then contributes to much darker elements of German history. So um, the spirituality is I, I think it's pretty fascinating. It, it resonated also with things I was encountering as a young person, you know, in the 80s and 90s, like, you know, Shirley MacLaine and, and people just believing in crystals and things like that. So so they uh, practiced this religion called Mazda's Nan. Uh, Johannes Itten, this very influential teacher who came later in 1919 and founded the preliminary course, uh, was the one who brought this religion to the school. But a number of people who came from different quarters had already run into it because it was something that was coursing around among members of the avant-garde and people just interested in new ways of living and being. 
And um, Mazda's Nan was kind of a mashup of spiritism, you know, belief that the dead were all around us and uh, tantric Hinduism and Zoroastrianism and uh, theosophy, you know, all kinds of experimental ideas that were that had had currency for a while, you know, since the 19th century people, there was this strong international presence of a religion called spirit, spiritism or spiritualism, depending on which continent you're on, uh, where spirit photography, you know, other manifestations of ghosts, seances was were important. So all of this comes to the Bauhaus and people are, you know, eating a special diet and believing that the clouds can be an oracle that pretend the future. And on the one hand, it sounds a little a little ridiculous at times, especially when we think of the Bauhaus as this, you know, supposed site of rationality. On the other hand, I think it indicates that they were just very open and not that judgmental and, and just kind of exploring. And it's after World War One and of the original class of Bauhaus members, most of the men had uh, served in the war. One woman that we know of served in the war, Gunther Stutzel, was a nurse, and they'd seen horrible things and you know, really wanted to try to make a better world and were quite curious about how to do that. I'd say on the other side, you know, there uh, the kind of coldness of the architecture and design or, or simplicity of it, you could also say that that you're pointing to, and I think in your question, you're kind of linking this to eventual turn of Germany to uh, Nazism. And I, I think that's, that's an interesting linkage. Um, and sometimes it works like that and sometimes it doesn't. You know, I'd say the aesthetics, one of my main arguments, and it's something I'm pursuing in my next book, is that aesthetics don't have a politics, even though we tend to think that they do. So um, the Bauhaus is constantly being attacked, mostly from the right wing, for being too radical, uh, you know, young people gone awry, gone, you know, totally off the farm. And uh, it's it's the usual critiques that happen intergenerationally, right? Like they're all having sex with each other. They're all, um, you know, just immoral and they have crazy political ideas. And, and this is being printed in the local paper in Weimar. And um, Walter Gropius, the founder and first director of the Bauhaus, who was himself a political leftist and had been pretty active right before he started Bauhaus, was actually really became in a way through this kind of stodgy simply because he he just wanted to really build the school. So he was constantly saying the Bauhaus is not political and trying to root out any political activity, certainly at least from coming into the press. He definitely was a very community-minded person and loved to socialize. And that was a great part, I think, of the of the Bauhaus. But in public they didn't want anyone to be political. And then what happens kind of, if we really fast forward towards the later years of the Bauhaus is that all of Germany and much of Europe and really the world becomes politicized. Um, I attribute it largely to the Great Depression that sweeps the world. And people are very, very concerned about just getting by. And uh, as we see now, when people are uh, in need or or are worried, right? Even now, I think sometimes people are certainly fine in terms of their 
existence, but can become radicalized uh, in their politics. And and now again, actually, we have a huge class di- divide where many people are not okay in terms of their existential needs. So what happens in Germany is there's a huge and kind of ever-growing political split between uh, the right and the left. And while we worry about the rise of Nazism, people at the time were very worried people kind of in the larger middle were worried about the rise of communism. And they saw the Soviet Union still hanging on, uh, you know, more than a decade after the Russian Revolution of 1917. And uh, they're quite concerned about what they also know people have gone through there, which is a long civil war and very difficult conditions for living. And so the Bauhaus is kind of caught up in this. And as you can imagine, the students are, for the most part, on the leftist side of things. There was a communist cell in the Bauhaus. Uh, There were a number of, something like a third of the students were actively engaged in communism. Not all of them were party members because that cost money and they didn't all have the money. But uh, they were in alliance with local workers groups. They had a, a recognized communist cell in the Bauhaus from 1927 on. And secretly they were collaborating with workers groups in the town of Dessau where the second location of the Bauhaus was. Uh, after they'd been kicked out of Weimar and were marching with the with local communists. They were creating propaganda and uh, really active. There was also a group of right-wing students in the school. Some of them, we hear, were already members of the Nazi party. I am working on finding that out. I have not uh, yet figured out exactly who in. After the Bauhaus falls apart in 1933, when the Nazis come to party, the Bauhaus definitely continues on. And there are even people like uh, Fritz Ertel, who was an SS member and had always been politically right-wing and was uh, doing architectural work in Auschwitz. So this kind of cold, rational side of things really goes into the kind of horrible end game of the Holocaust. But I guess I'd just say, you know, to counter that and and just as to come back as a last point to your question, you know, at the same time, this kind of much more empathetic, fuzzy, you called it, spiritual side of the Bauhaus also continues on. If we look at a figure like Friedel Dicker, who ends up in Theresienstadt concentration camp and ghetto and teaches 500 children using Bauhaus methods. And her teacher was Johannes Itten. So she's very interested in art as a kind of creative space of uh, spiritual growth and healing. And so she uses this as a a form of art therapy with her students who are really in, you know, living in very difficult circumstances. And about 400 of them perished in the Holocaust, uh, but those who survived said that was really life-changing to to work with her. And she too also perished at Auschwitz where Fritz Ertel was working. So it all kind of comes back together in a very sinister and sad uh, portion of the Bauhaus. But I think it's an important history to tell. So the subtitle of the book is Occult Spirituality, Gender Fluidity, Queer Identities and Radical Politics. And I've sort of asked you about the occult stuff and the political stuff. 
And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about gender fluidity and queer identities in the Bauhaus and just a little bit about what you pick out in the book about those two sure. subjects, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, so, I mean, gender in general is just something that really interests me. It um, it It is a source of much frustration to me that uh, even to this day, even though there are as many, if not more, female artists working than men, uh, women are still being collected by museums at a rate of 11%, at least in the US, um, and getting shows at, you know, perhaps a, a little bit, you know, 14% is the figure I've heard. So there is this kind of consistent skipping over of uh, women's work and women's voices that um, I, for one, have had enough of. I know I'm not alone. And uh, so throughout the book, I'm, I am just always trying to put women's work back into the story because it was there and it was really important. Um, in terms of gender fluidity and queer identities, that's also just something that's very, I've, I've long worked on. Um, and, uh, you know, early on, I was working actually on the Cubist painter, Marie Laurence, who is seen it very much as a marginal figure. Um, but I realized there was all this queer iconography in her work. And that in fact, she was connected to this entire circle of uh, mostly women in Paris. Uh, they're often referred to as the women of the left bank, uh, some of whom were lovers, but, you know, they were collaborators and uh, doing all this great exper modernist experimentation at the same time that Cubism was happening. You know, people like Gertrude Stein, uh, Stein who was the first person to buy a Picasso, uh, were, were a part of this circle. So, so there are these overlapping groups and often like the one group full of women and queers and other really interesting, experimental, curious people just gets written out of history. So that is just part of the background of why I was interested in this. So, you know, it's quite curious because the years 1919 to 1933 are the year of the Weimar Republic. It's the exact period of the existence of the Bauhaus. And there's a third really important experimental institution at the same time called the Institute for Sexual Research uh, that also exists for those exact years. And the Institute for Sexual Research was uh, in Berlin founded by Magnus Hirschfeld, who was a scientist and a reformer. And privately, he was also a gay man, although he was often quiet about his personal life because he knew the stakes were kind of high in terms of establishing this research institute as something very serious. And what the Institute proposed to do as its methodology was to look at human sexuality really through science, to get away from morality or, you know, should and should not, and to look more at, you know, what are people's desires and practices? What are their bodies like? He was uh, one of the first people to research intersex people or people now who we would refer to as trans. Um, they called them transvestites, you know, which implies now it's, yeah, not, not the preferred term because it implies you know, that someone is doing something that they shouldn't, um, you know, wearing clothing of, in quotes, not their gender. But, you know, he it, that wasn't, that's just uh, the language. He was really yeah. quite interested just in in how people are and in, in talking about this and 
you know, the the film The Danish Girl actually is about a real historical person, Lily Elba, who had her surgeries for a sex change, male to female, um, at that institute. So I was curious to find queer people at the Bauhaus. Um, and I, I should just say, too, as another kind of historical detail that is important, throughout this period, paragraph 175 uh, of German law was still on the books and very much active. And this is the paragraph that criminalizes male homosexuality. So the fight against paragraph 175 was ongoing uh, and throughout uh, German culture. The first gay rights film, different from the others, gets made in 1919. So it's really being actively discussed. And parallel to that, Weimar Germany had this uh, you know, famous, fun, very open, vibrant queer culture in clubs and magazines, uh, you know, in discussion. So there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of room for maneuver in there. And over the years, I just kept my eyes open for uh, works that that could be read queerly and for people who, you know, maybe show up as queer in the archive in some discussion, and then I'd go back and look at their work. And I'd say two of the the most, well, there, there are a number, I mean, there are any number of interesting queer people. I, I found people like uh, Max Pfeiffer-Wattenpool, who was is mostly remembered as a painter, but also was a photographer and definitely was circulating in queer circles uh, in throughout Europe. Uh, but also, you know, among friends of his who uh, it turns out were gay um, at the Bauhaus and continue to be very important uh, collaborators and friends for each other than in the years after that. Um, and some of his photographs show people definitely camped up. Um, some of them seeming to be, you know, in, um, in drag and also photographs of a, a lovely Roman youth, um, wearing very little. So, um, you know, he's also using photography to, express desire and to, to capture that. Um, Florence Henri, who is a really important photographer, and, you know, there's there was a major exhibition of her work at the Jus de Pomme and a catalog uh, by Aperture, but still, I'm often surprised that she's not better known because, um, you know, Walter Gropius, for example, certainly thought she was one of the most important Bauhaus photographers and included her work in the first major exhibition of Bauhaus in the U.S., which was at MoMA in 1938. But she was, she learned photography at the Bauhaus, probably from Lucia Moholy, um, who was her friend and, you know, could have taught her there when no one else was really teaching it. And, you know, Florence Henri was staying with the Moholy, the Moholy Nages, so um, she probably learned it there. And uh, she begins to take these you know, really interesting photographs of mostly portraits, but also object studies that are incredibly gorgeously composed. And she often images her partner, the Bauhaus weaver Margarita Schall, in a, in a way that seems to create a new form of lesbian subjectivity and just really interesting exploratory images of a kind of new kind of femininity that's emerging into a more public space at this time. And the last person I would mention is somebody called Richard uh, Kruner. I'm still 
still on the search for more more work by him that uh, I think may, maybe something has been found. I, I have a, an inkling from Germany that this might be the case. But he was at the early Bauhaus and a very influential teacher there called Gertrude uh, Grüne. She kind of worked in parallel with Itten and was very interested in spiritual harmonization of the students and often assessed them once they'd taken a semester of the preliminary course to decide whether or not they were ready to go on and specialize in a workshop or whether they needed more time to kind of ripen uh, before before they were ready for, for that. And she, in the minutes of the Bauhaus Master's Council meeting, she wrote of him that she felt like, you know, he was on the verge of discovering something about himself. And once he did, that he'd be much more free as an artist. And of course, we'll never know exactly what she meant by that. But it definitely, to me, sounded like a case, you know, knowing about his biography afterwards, I should say, it sounded like a case of a queer kid who was kind of figuring it out and and at a moment of struggle. And so she suggested he should, he wasn't quite ready. And after a year, he'd taken the course twice. She, or, you know, you kind of continued developing through it. It was common to take it more than once. Uh, he left the Bauhaus, but went on to become a, a graphic designer and a leftist and uh, do really interesting work, like so many in the Bauhaus did. People kind of came and went a lot. And then he ends up uh, getting arrested in 1934 by the police under Nazism, specifically for being gay. It was the charge was that he had had a lay, loud gay party. And uh, he, so even though he was making anti-Nazi propaganda, that's not why he got arrested. And he was in concentration camps from 1934, more or less all the time until the end of the war in 1945. And he survived, uh, but it was incredibly harrowing as it was for anyone who, who survived that. And uh, his work was destroyed. Paragraph 175 was still an active part of German law in the post-war period. It, it remained a law uh, that, that male sexuality was illegal uh, until the 1990s, actually. And because of this, wow. people like Richard Grun, he never got rep reparations. He never was compensated for what he'd gone through. And he was largely ignored in histories of the Bauhaus. So what we have for sure are the the graphic designs and photography work and photo montage that he published. It's a little bit of material. But as I said, I, I think there's an archive maybe of a few works that have survived. And and he did make a bit of work after, after the war. But I think he was really kind of a broken man. And so I think recapturing those stories and, and realizing that gay artists were just a part of things, being graphic designers, photographers, weavers, you know, all of it, just just as it is now that um, queer people are doing all kinds of things um, in all kinds of parts of life. But that also there are these threads of people specifically trying to explore uh, queer imagery and queer iconography and just same-sex desire using Bauhaus methods and tools and in the context of a, of a queer community of sorts within, within the Bauhaus. Great, that's a really nice way to finish, I think. Thank you so much for talking to me about the book. It's really good and, yeah, just really necessary as well. I thought if you wanted to, you could uh, let people know if you've got any talks or lectures or anything coming up so they can come and listen to you talk about it even more if they would like. 
Sure, yeah. I've got, I'm speaking on November 15th at the Performa Festival. Um, that's coming up soon, so I don't know if that would be included in this, but I'll be at uh, the University of Virginia on November 25th. I'm speaking at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia on January 31st. And on February 14th, I'll be at the in the Annenberg Theater at Palm Springs Modern. Uh, and I think they've got seating for over 400. So that's oh, that's wow. the real place for us that's all the to meet up. <laughs> Great. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sam. Thanks. It's fun talking. Thanks.